to joy together weekly and confess that eternal truth that Jesus indeed is reigning and he shall reign one day with his chosen bride, his church, that is you and me. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Psalms, to the Psalms, and as you turn to the Psalms, uh, specifically we want to look this morning at Psalm 45. Psalm 45, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, it is our habit here at Woodlawn to take books of the Bible and to preach through those books, for we believe that God has equally revealed himself to us through uh, each book of the Bible, and so we give our attention to uh, the text of Scripture. We are this summer going through the Psalms, and we'll return here in a few weeks in August to the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12. But today here in Psalm, Psalm 45, Psalm 45, did you get your invitation? Are you ready? Have you marked your calendars? It's the big day. It's the day everyone is waiting for. It's the day everyone has been waiting for. The announcement of the marriage of the king of Israel has gone out to the entirety of the community of faith. He is marrying a daughter of another king. The entire country is indeed ready for this marriage celebration. Psalm 45 is a reflection of a psalm that would have been sung at the marriage of one of Israel's kings. It's a reflection, a poetic reflection, a song of reflection of a marriage between a king and his bride, between a bridegroom and a bride. And here, this psalm is a reminder to you and me that the marriage of a king, or in this conversation, this text, the marriage of the king, who is himself the seed of David, the marriage of a king who is the seed of David to his bride was an incredible reminder to the nation of Israel that God would be faithful to his promises. The marriage of the king, who is the seed of David, to his bride was a reminder to the nation of Israel of God's incredible promises that he, God, would indeed fulfill all of those promises. This text is broken down for us in verses 1 through 9 as a reflection of the king, a reflection of the preparation of the king, a reflection of the king's character. Then the following verses, verses 10 through 15, are a reflection of the bride. As we might anticipate, particularly today in our culture, uh, we all show up, let's just be honest, we want to see the bride, right? Well, I've got some bad news for you. In this wedding, the bride was not the primary focus. The bridegroom was the focus in the passage of Scripture here, but the text of Scripture reflects on the soon to be queen here in verses 10 through 15. And then the psalmist concludes with the statement of God's faithfulness to the king and queen as they faithfully follow Christ. Let's see this text and ourselves too be reminded that the same God who was faithful to the nation of Israel is likewise faithful to you and me. 
Psalm 45, verses one through nine, remind us of the image of the bridegroom being honored on his wedding day. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, notice what the text of scripture says, a love song. My heart is stirred to boiling. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And this is what the psalmist has to say about this king. You are the most handsome of all the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God, Elohim, has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. We know a little bit about royal marriages today, it always amazes me, even in the context of America, when one of the children uh, or the grandchildren of the Queen of England has a marriage, it is amazing to me how that image completely inundates American TV for three or four or five days. Even those of us who maybe have never paid one ounce of attention to the monarch in England, for whatever reason, on this royal wedding day, we tend to pay much attention. This is a royal wedding day among the nation of Israel. This is a royal wedding day for the people of God. Much anticipation has hinged on this day. Primarily, much anticipation has hinged on this day for what we read For example, at the very end of this passage of Scripture in verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. It was a theological understanding of the nation of Israel that one who would flow from the lineage of David would indeed be established on the throne of the nation of Israel forever. This wasn't just an ordinary royal wedding day. That it was. 
but it was a royal wedding day unlike anything anticipated or expected in the known world. Why? For this royal wedding day was a statement and a reminder of God's incredible favor upon the nation of Israel. It was a reminder of the promises of God's word that God himself indeed would be faithful to the nation of Israel. Much anticipation theologically rested on this day. And so the psalmist begins a reflection of this royal wedding day with a reminder, a statement of exactly what is taking place. This is, we note from verse one, a love song. Now don't we all love a love song? This is a love song played on K-love potentially here in uh, the nation of of Israel. This is a love song that would have been sung for the marriage of the king and the nation of Israel, and particularly sung among those who were equipped to do the singing, the sons of, of Korah, a reflection on behalf of the psalmist who says, as I think of God's covenant promises to his people, my heart, notice verse one, overflows with a pleasing Thing. This word to overflow in the Hebrew is a word that means to stir. I've oftentimes been asked by my wife, just a few times, the last time I did this, I think I actually permanently worked myself out of a job. She asked me to stir some sticky stuff she was making on the stove. I think you're going to pour it over some pecans or nuts or something. I don't know. I was supposed to stir that stuff, you know, just continually. And the more you stirred it, the more it started you know, coming. And she gave me very specific instructions, by the way. Stir it for five minutes. I set the timer on the stove for five minutes, and boy, I was stirring that stuff. The problem was, the more I stirred, the bigger it got. And all of a sudden, that stuff, I thought it was going to start, you know, coming out of the pot. Well, I didn't have enough sense, I guess, to realize I'd actually stirred it all the way to it being burnt. It was no good after that. This is the image here of what's taking place with this psalm and a conversation of overflowing. It's an image of one who is stirring with, with great passion. And from the stirring of that boiling water, it just begins to overflow. The psalmist is saying, as I reflect on God's covenantal promises, my heart can't help but overflow with great joy and being reminded in this covenant marriage ceremony of God's incredible blessing to his people. As you think about God this morning, friends, as you think about all of God's incredible promises to his people, does your heart overflow with the same sense of joy? Does your heart burst forth with the same sense of thankfulness as you reflect on God's promises to you? He says, I'm going to address this king and I'm going to do this in a poetic way. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. A psalmist is ready to let loose, if you will, a reflection of God's blessings. What is this reflection of God's blessing? First of all, he notes here a reflection of God's blessing in the king himself. The king is honored on his wedding day. Notice what he says, verse 2. The bridegroom is perfect. There's not another like you among all the sons of men, he says. You are the most 
handsome of the sons of men. By the way, one of the things I enjoy doing in premarital counseling is encouraging uh, young men and women to make their own vows. Sarah Johnson, I think this would be a perfect statement for you when you get ready for your marriage here in just a a year. I mean, it, it would drip with just beautiful biblical imagery. We'd all really appreciate it. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. You know what he's saying? You're most impressive. The stature of of who you are is impressive among all things. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. The psalmist is reminding the nation of Israel that the king himself is indeed a gift from God. The fact that the nation of Israel was going to have a king was an outflow of God's promise to the nation of Israel flowing all the way back from God's promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a day of of great rejoicing. This is a day of being reminded of God's incredible faithfulness to his people. This king is indeed perfect in every measurable way. But not only in this passage of Scripture is the king perfect. Notice next here in verse 3, the psalmist reflects on the king's might. The king is one who is mighty indeed. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. This word mighty is a word that you might remember from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as God was yet again reminding the nation of Israel of his incredible blessings and promises to the nation of Israel in a moment in which they thought that God had indeed forgotten who they were. You might remember that one of the promises of God was that there would be this child that would be born, and this child that would be born would be one who would be a mighty God, an El Gibor, a mighty God. The psalmist here is reflecting on the king, and he's using this same Hebrew word, a a gibor, one who is mighty indeed. And what the psalmist is asking of this king is that the king would ultimately rule in such a way that he is continually pouring out his goodness toward the people of God. It was a sign of hope of what this king would ultimately do on behalf of God himself. He's one who is perfect. He's one who is mighty. But notice verses six through seven remind us that he is one who is completely righteous. This righteous one, your throne, O God. It might seem somewhat odd that the psalmist is reflecting on the king as as being an Elohim. This word Elohim was the word that was the word God in, in ancient times, and it could be used as a reference to a variety of different things. Of course, there were other pagan gods who were themselves referred to as Elohim, and your Bible translates those uh, with a lowercase g. And Moses, you might remember in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 7, was reflected on as one who would be an Elohim to Pharaoh. The psalmist also uses this in other ways to reflect upon men in certain situations who, who were to be a God, if you will. 
The psalmist is clearly not stating that the king of Israel is himself deity, but here reflecting upon the righteousness of the king, your throne, O God, a reflection to the king, is forever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. This is a statement of hope that this earthly king would do that which God had commanded and that he would rule his people with uprightness, that he would rule his people in righteousness. For we understand from the text of Scripture, when righteousness prevails, the people themselves prosper. It's one of the reasons why, for example, we as citizens of this great country should do our best to elect men and women who are righteous and will rule in righteousness and will execute in righteousness. This is why we should desire to have judges, for example, who operate from a Judeo-Christian background, for we understand in a real way when our leaders rule in righteousness, there is a sense of peace that is pervasive among the community. And this is exactly what the psalmist is praying this king would be. Of course, we know that there are certain examples of kings in the nation of Israel where this truth indeed would not be true. I'm thinking, for example, the marriage between King Ahaz and Jezebel. This would be a tough hymn to sing at that marriage, would it not? King Ahaz was not going to rule in any measurable way of righteousness. He would be led astray by uh, Queen Jezebel, and the effects of that uh, evilness were pervasive in the culture of Israel, and it even turned much of Israel's heart away from God. The psalmist is praying, God, might you raise up for us in this king one who is going to rule with righteousness. And when he rules with righteousness and justice, we, as a citizenry, will reap the benefits of living in that type of community. Not only is he one who is perfect, not only is he one who is completely, totally mighty, not only is he one who is completely righteous, but he is one who is totally blessed by God. Look at verses 8 and 9. He's one who is completely, totally blessed by God. You've heard the phrase, he's made of money. This is what the psalmist is saying here at verse 8. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloe and cassia. uh, These are reflections of very expensive spices to which the king has availed himself of. And it's as though he's just dripping with this richness, with this wealth. He's been blessed by God, verse 9, from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. He has access to the greatest entertainment in all of the world. And at this wedding, make no mistake, it is going to be filled with people of royal descent. Every 
known deity, if you will, every known king or queen from around the world is going to send a representative to be seated at your wedding. This is going to be a marvelous, magnificent display of hope and strength and gratitude. Why? This king is one who is completely, totally blessed by God, but not to be left out. The psalmist not only gives us a reflection of the mightiness of the king, the psalmist also reflects for us in verses 10 through 15 on the bride. And here in these verses, the bride is being prepared for this wedding ceremony that is to take place. Notice what the psalmist says in reflection of the bride's preparation here. O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people, all glorious in their princes in her chamber with robes and are woven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. The psalmist is reflecting upon the preparation that goes into making this one who appears from the text of Scripture, one who is from outside of the community, be ready for her engagement with those who are inside of the community. And so we're reminded here of, uh, of the queen's responsibility to pledge ultimate allegiance to the king. She is one who is to be faithful to the king in every measurable way. And notice he, the psalmist, Ask the queen in these ways. Look at these three words. Hear, consider, incline your ear. You children know it when your parents are really wanting you to hear something, right? In my house, it might go something like this. Hey, David. He'll casually turn and look at you, right? David maybe with a little bit of a greater sense of urgency. But if I say, David Lewis, he's coming running, why? This is what the psalmist is doing here. With a great sense of pointedness, the psalmist is saying to this bride, pay careful, close attention, listen to what I am about to instruct you as you reflect upon marriage to our great king. First of all, you must have a complete and total allegiance to him. Look how he asks for this allegiance. Forget your people and your father's house and the queen and the king will there find delight in you. We understand this to some sense. It is the biblical paradigm that a uh, a, a man shall leave his father and his mother and he shall cling to his wife and those two shall become one. Marriage is indeed a, a sense of commitment on two people in which they are pledging that their ultimate priority is toward 
is toward one another. The king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow down to him. And Blake, while we're thinking of wonderful reflections for wedding days, I can't help but think that this would be a perfect example for you to note also in your wedding vows here. I think it'd be just marvelous for you to reflect in this way. The king, we understand in antiquity, was one who ruled with absolute authority. And the sound of this text to our modern ears is indeed foreign to how we understand a right relationship between a husband and a wife to be. But in this context, the psalmist is reminding the queen that her greatest allegiance indeed will be to the king. Not only is she to be one who is going to be faithful to the king, but notice what the psalmist says in verses 13 to 15. She is stunningly gorgeous to the same extent that the king himself is the greatest and most handsome of all the men. So too is this bride beautifully adorned for her king. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. The moment everyone is waiting for. We understand it when the doors open and the bride comes down, everybody rises. This is the moment. This is that key moment in which the bride has been perfectly prepared for her king. The palace doors swing open and the marriage ceremony begins. And notice the psalmist hope of what this marriage produces for the people of God. Verses 15 and 16, sorry, verses 16 and 17. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Notice the end of verse 17. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. A statement of what God will do for those who walk in covenant faithfulness with him. This is the hope of all of the nation of Israel. This is the way God has designed them to live in relationship to one another. But notice, it's not only in relationship to one another, it's also in relationship to the nations. This marriage between the king and and the queen, the king of Israel and his bride, was to be a means of incredible blessing, not only for the nation of Israel, but for all of the nations surrounding them. This isn't going to be any surprise for those of us who have read our Old Testaments throughout. It was God's design from the very beginning that the nation of Israel would be a blessing to all nations. Remember or hear the words of God to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and I will 
Curse those who curse you. This is a reflection of that eternal truth communicated to the nation of Israel at her very beginning. God's blessing to the nation of Israel is to be extended to those around her. But this isn't a marriage that only has a statement of reminder for the nation of Israel. That in this marriage between the king and his bridegroom, that it would be a statement of God's covenantal promises toward the nation of Israel. This text is also a reminder to you and me, to those who by faith had trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reminder to the bride of Christ that God will also be true to his word to you and to me. This text of scripture is used both specifically and then in imagery in the New Testament to point us to the person of Christ. It won't surprise any of us that there is only one king who ever faithfully and specifically fulfilled the promise and the hope of this text of scripture for the nation of Israel, for the people of God, and it was the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no perfect king who executed his responsibilities to the nation of Israel or the people of God like Jesus has executed his role and responsibility to the people of God. There is no king in the nation of Israel who was perfect, but King Jesus was perfect. There was no king in the nation of Israel that would rule with perfect uh, uprightness and righteousness, but King Jesus ruled with perfect uprightness and righteousness. There was no king in the nation of Israel who perfectly prepared his bride for a marriage. But I want you to know this morning, friends, King Jesus is perfectly preparing his bride for the marriage supper of the Lamb. This text is a reminder to you and me that Jesus Christ will indeed be faithful to his covenant promises. This text reminds us in relationship to Jesus that Jesus, our bridegroom, is the one who is most Glorious. Look with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, or if you want to just take your worship guides and turn into your worship guides, we reflected on this text this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews here at the very beginning, Luke, is reminding us of the superiority of Jesus to all those around him, and particularly here, Jesus' superiority to the angels. And in depicting Jesus' 
might and depicting the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and depicting that Jesus is far greater than anyone else. Notice where he chooses to go to make his point. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. Notice how your Bible writes this, but of the Son, he says. Do you see that in your Bible? Is the word Son there in Hebrews chapter 1 capitalized? This is a reflection of the Son of God. This is a reflection of Jesus Christ himself. But of Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness before your companions. Jesus is absolutely more glorious than anything you or I could ever imagine. He is far more beautiful than the angels. And the writer of Hebrews reaches all the way back into the Old Testament to Psalm 45 to remind you and me that the ultimate king in Psalm 45 is not the king in Israel. It is King Jesus who rules forever upon the seat of David. He is, Jesus is most glorious. He is better than any of the angels. But not only that, Jesus himself is the one who rules with perfect righteousness. See, the king of Israel was to be a representative of God. But the king of Israel at the end of the day was human and not divine, and could err in judgment. And boy, oftentimes did the king of Israel not err in judgment. But friends, look to Jesus. This one who reigns with perfect righteousness, with precision of judgment, Jesus does not, Jesus will not err in his judgment of righteousness against my life and against your life. For those of us who by faith have trusted in the person of Jesus Christ, this reflection of this king as one who reigns in righteousness is a statement of great hope. For Jesus will ultimately rule with righteousness and judgment. We long for that day in which we stand before the throne of God and he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But friend, God's perfect rule through Jesus not only is a statement of judgment toward reward, it is also a statement of judgment toward condemnation. Because Jesus is a righteous judge, because Jesus Jesus does not err in his judgment. Friend, if you're here today and you stand separated from this glorious king, you stand apart from this glorious king, 
Notice that this glorious king is going to finally one day rule in righteousness. And the latter half of that text of scripture is Jesus' statement of that righteous judgment. Not only will he say to those who by faith have trusted in Jesus, well done, but he will say to those who rejected Jesus as Lord, depart from me, you workers of evil, for I never knew you. Jesus is most glorious in his execution of judgment. On what side of Jesus' judgment does your life lie this morning? If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus as this great and glorious and beautiful king who rules forever and ever, as the text of Scripture says, would you see this beautiful, glorious Savior who is himself the El Gabor, the mighty God? And would you be compelled by the text of Scripture to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus in this way? For he is indeed one who rules completely in righteousness. Not only is Jesus one who is better than any angel, not only is Jesus one who completely, totally rules in righteousness, but notice what the psalmist said here in in Psalm uh, 45. He speaks complete, total truth. Look at verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of man. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forevermore. A statement of this king being a gift from God, but a statement that grace rests upon his lips is a statement that flowing from this king is one who always speaks eternal truth. Look with me in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, in verse 22, reflecting upon the person of, of Jesus Christ, hear these words. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Jesus is that king who fulfills perfectly the reflection of this king in Psalm 45. Jesus is indeed the most glorious, but as we reflect on this psalm as well, this psalm also calls you and me as it calls the bridegroom to prepare. It asks the question of my heart and of your heart, are you preparing for the bridegroom in this same way? Have you prepared your heart for your meeting with our bridegroom, bridegroom Jesus. I noted just a few moments ago that this text was specifically referenced in the New Testament, but the imagery of this text is also alluded to, particularly as we reflect upon some of the imagery in Revelation and Revelation at the marriage Feast of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. 
and we'll read verses 6 through 8. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, notice the text of Scripture, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The same way in which the queen prepared herself for the marriage in Psalm 45 is the same way in which the book of Revelation reflects upon us as the bride of Christ preparing ourselves for that encounter when we see Jesus Christ face to face. So it asks the question of our hearts, of our lives. As we look forward to that day, as we look forward to that marriage, the completion of our faith, How are you at this very moment preparing for that day? Do you find yourself delighting in the things of the king? Do you find yourself desiring to know his word? Do you find yourself hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Do you find yourself desiring this gathering of the body of Christ? Do you find yourself desiring to proclaim the greatness and the goodness of the King? See, friends, as we await that day in which Jesus Christ comes again and the culmination of our faith, we hear the words of the Apostle Paul as he tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As he gives us a warning throughout the pastoral epistles, it matters how we walk. Are you walking this morning in a manner worthy of the call of Christ Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you're willing to recognize the beauty of the king. You're willing to confess he's glorious. You're willing to acknowledge his might. But how are those truths transforming the way you're living your life at this very moment? Are you making proper preparation for the time in which we see Jesus face to face. And lastly, in reflection of this text, do you have the same longing to see Jesus? Staying here in Revelation chapter 9, 19, in verses 11 through 16, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one seated, sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Listen at the imagery flowing from Psalm 45 of this king, the one who is now perfect in the person of Jesus. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sword, a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is the name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you long for this glorious reign of Jesus? Do you hope for this time in which perfect righteousness will be experienced by the people of God and executed perfectly by Jesus himself? The end of Psalm 45 again. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Friends, this should be our eternal hope as believers. As we prepare for the ultimate culmination of our faith, the marriage supper of the Lamb, do you join with the psalmist in expressing the same hope, the same passion, that nations will be seated around the throne of God and forever give him praise. See, friends, as we reflect upon this psalm, as we think about the beauty of this glorious one, as we make preparation as his bride, as we long for his return, perhaps the greatest way we express our love and commitment to Christ is in the ways in which we make Christ known to those around us. And friends, we do that through the eternal worship of a triune God. It begins in this context, and it flows out of this context, and into our communities, and into our jobs, and into our homes where we make much of King Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for the revelation of this beautiful King, of this most glorious King, of this great King, of this perfect King. And we ask you this morning to stir in our hearts a love and a passion for this King that changes the way in which we live our lives now, that causes a sense of great desire in our hearts for his coming. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and respond and reflect upon the preaching of God's word? Do you see Jesus as this glorious, ruling, reigning 
just, mighty, beautiful king? If this is not your image of Jesus this morning, would you ask God by his spirit and through his word to reorient your understanding of who Jesus is around the revelation of his word? And would you worship this Jesus today, friends? If you're here today and you've never trusted in the finished, accomplished work of Christ on the cross, then we would beg you today to see the beauty and the greatness of King Jesus and in doing so, believe in him and trust in him. For the scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved today, friend. Your life can forever eternally be changed by your trusting in the person of Christ. Would you trust in Jesus? And for God's people here this morning, would you reflect for a few moments on how you are or are not making preparation for Jesus' return? Do you live your life at every moment with that awareness? Have you constructed your life in such a way that your every step, your every breath, your every communication to your children, your bank account, your home, is pointed in one direction. Jesus is coming again. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and respond to the preaching of God's word through singing. Friend, if you're here today and you have a question about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be down front. As we sing, this would be an opportunity for you to come forward and we'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come talk to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you that would be delighted to share with you how you can trust in Christ, or please ask one of us at the end of the service. And maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you. Then indeed your life would be centered and oriented around this beautiful depiction of who Jesus is, and that this image of this king would drive and compel your life. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you would like to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our responses be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.